0: This is OTB Sports Radio. But I do remember very vividly standing in the shower after the OLLF final saying to Fergan McCusker, is this it? Is this it? Desolate almost, like a sense of total anticlimax. And the two of us wandered up to the cat and cage and had a pint. In those days, there were no big formalities. And I can remember thinking, I can feel it now when I'm sitting here, that sense of anticlimax, which was a great lesson in life. Once it's behind you, you just move on.
1: Off the ball, Saturdays from 1 on OTB Sports Radio. Listen live on the OTB Sports app. The OTB Podcast Network.
2: You ain't shit. I wish I was 50 years younger and I'd kick your ass.
1: Well, you're welcome back to Off the Ball Saturday here on News Talk. John Duggan with you through to five o'clock. We're streaming the conversation as well now. So as well as listening on News Talk, you can watch us on the Off the Ball social channels for Periscope on Twitter at Off the Ball, YouTube, Facebook, and on the OTB Sports app. If you haven't downloaded that already, please do so by searching OTB Sports in your app store. This is the Saturday panel. A lot of people say to themselves, I'd love to run a marathon. Maybe one day I'll run a marathon. Have you run a marathon? What's your experience? Would you like to? Maybe you've run countless Dublin marathons or maybe even further afield. To get an insight into the art of marathon running, we're just absolutely thrilled to be joined by three Olympians. Three people who've competed at the top of world sport over the next hour to just get their insights, their stories, their advice, probably most importantly. We're delighted to be joined by John Tracy, Olympic silver medalist from 1984 Los Angeles Marathon and CEO of the Irish Sports Council. Cork's Lizzie Lee, a former European cross-country team gold medal winner and a runner in the marathon in Rio, the last Olympics in 2016. And Sonia Sullivan, the former world champion, 5,000 metres runner, who won the Dublin Marathon in 2000, just after claiming silver at the Sydney Olympics that same year. John, Lizzie and Sonia, how are you all doing? Very good. Lizzie, Cork and Waterford here. No monster hurling now, slagging over the next <laughs> uh, hour. <laughs> marathon running, the do's and don'ts. Lizzie Lee... The organisers of the Bank Holiday uh, Dublin Marathon are hopeful. They're cautiously optimistic. They said this week that they're going to hold it. They'll know a bit more in June. Like Hopefully, we'll be all vaccinated by then. Um, but somebody who's never run a marathon before, what are the do's and don'ts in terms of preparation, diet, nutrition, all of these things that comes to getting yourself ready to run a marathon?
2: Wow, that's a big one. Um, so I would start with um, a plan. And usually it's a 12 to 16 week plan. There are tons of them online, but Dublin Marathon themselves always put out schedules. What I love about the Dublin Marathon is they have the race series. So you can, and I did it myself as a newbie runner in 2006. I was only just starting to run. I was being coached by Maria McCambridge and Gary Crossan. And um, I did the race series during the summer. Um, And I was just doing triathlons and, you know, Fun, really fun running and I found the structure of building up to the marathon by doing the race series really good to keep me focused and keep me motivated throughout the summer. So the, the first one would be find a, a good plan, a good coach, an athletics club or just a group because I, and now we're allowed training groups of 15 again in, in a few days. Um, accountability is, the, is really one of the big principles of training. So if you have arranged to meet even one person and you have that date in your diary for that you have a roadmap to get you to the marathon and you have the plan, you're much more likely to concede to succeed than just going out for a run every Sunday with you know no watch and no real plan as to what you're doing, which is enjoyable. But if you want to do a marathon, you have to have your homework done or it'll be grim. So the real preparation is about the long-term. Well, what am I, what's my goal and how am I going to get started? Um, and really experts, there's experts all over the country. There's groups, athletic clubs all over the country. Go to your local one, find somebody. Everybody knows somebody who runs and that person will know more than you do about, about marathon running. They might not be an expert, but they'll know more and they'll know where to go and who to talk to to just get started in terms of that long that, that, that goal plan uh, for
0: October Bank Holiday Weekend
1: John is there an art to this as Lizzie's saying this 26 miles to run a marathon
0: um, my advice to anyone that's planning on running a marathon think about and think about it again and if you're really convinced you want to do it <laughs> then put a plan together <laughs> um, uh, what, what I basically say is this is it's one foot in front of the other uh, there's no, there's no great uh, theory behind it. Uh, it's just putting one foot in front of the other as effectively and efficiently as possible. Right, and obviously the training that you put in, uh, and Lizzie outlined it in terms of following the plan, is that it's all about the training. Uh, you, there's one thing you'd say about marathon: you can't bluff marathon running. Right, you could get away with a 10k, you could get away with a 5k, you won't get away with a marathon. Uh, a marathon distance it could catch up with you and uh, you don't go into it half-baked or or carrying an injury you have to be in absolutely perfect shape to get around and and meet your objective for your goal or whatever it is Uh, like I used a kind of basis in terms of preparing for a marathon and it was planned a year in advance that was the kind of that was a program that I was walking for all the time. And it involved a huge commitment. Uh, like all of us were 5K, 10K uh, runners in our day or whatever, right? And you'd, 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 um, you, if, you, if you missed out or you had a poor run, you had another opportunity in a couple of weeks later. In a marathon, it's all or nothing. It really is all or nothing. And it's, it's in a 5K or a 10K, uh you're putting your training in and you'd almost always be positive in terms of how in terms of how what your time would be for a 5k or a 10k based on how your training is going but in a marathon anything can happen anything can happen you can just um implode let's put it that way so it is about but well, most importantly is about putting in the work without a shadow, without there's no there's no uh, you have to put in the work, you have to work hard, you have to have the discipline, you have to have everything that goes with it. Uh, I couldn't agree more than Lizzie in terms of do it with people and and train with people. It makes it training a lot more fun, and a lot more a lot more enjoyable. And uh, that was a key piece for me in terms of where I was training at the time, which is in, which is around Providence, Rhode Island or Phoenix, Arizona. There was always people to run with, and that just made things easy. And I was one of the people that you know, in terms of training for a marathon, uh, there was days where you'd run reasonably easy, and there was days you would really walk hard, and the track walkouts and everything that goes with that. So. Uh, when you're training at at world level, you're you're actually putting in a lot of quality, a lot of quality track sessions, a lot of a lot of tempo runs, while really doing doing the work and and just putting in bags of miles and, and putting them into the legs, and trying to then at the same time maintain your speed uh, for the 5K and 10K, because I was always always believed if you're running well at 5K, you run well at the 10K. If you run well at 10K, you run a good marathon. So it was all, all that time trying to keep the sharpness at the same time. And uh, the marathon does take its toll. It just kind of knocks off that sharpness off you. Uh, and if you do one more, it just knocks off a bit, another little bit of sharpness. So it takes a while to recover. So the, the, I suppose if anyone is out there thinking about training for a marathon, is, is, is plan carefully, listen to your body, uh, the body doesn't to you. It'll tell you if it's, 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 if you're walking too hard and then you have to have the, uh, the flexibility to back off and just say, I'll take one more day before I go hard. So it is about a lot of, a lot of listening to your body, but actually taking the guidance as well and just making sure you're not overreaching all the time. Uh, a lot of us would probably, probably say, uh, certainly we regret it. Uh, Doing one more at walkout because it backfired on us, but we kind of never regretted taking one one extra day rest. And I think yeah. that's a kind of something that we can all learn from as well. Uh, when in doubt, run easy. That was always my mantra, and then you'd be ready to go hard again the next day. So it's about planning, planning well, but it's it is really uh, about working extremely hard if you yeah. want to get the best out of yourself.
1: You've all progressed, Lizzie, from cross-country to the Olympics. John, yourself, Mm -hmm. twice cross-country world champion to the track to the Olympics and marathon. Sonia, yourself, you progressed as well. As we all know, such a brilliant track athlete. What John has said there and what Lizzie said, do you concur with it? Your advice, your experience of marathon running?
3: Yeah, I agree with everything that John and Lizzie say. And, you know, I I wouldn't consider myself a a true marathon runner. I think... um, You know, it was one of those things I was around at the time when people kind of thought you got to a certain stage in your track running and then it was time to move on to the marathon. And, you know, at the time, you know, I would have been running lots of long runs in training and it didn't seem like it was that much different training that you would do. And I probably didn't do enough different training to really, you know, be as good as I possibly believe myself that I should have been at the marathon. I didn't train properly for it. Um, it was only because it's a very specific level of training that you have to do. Like the long runs are really, really important. But then even more important is doing long runs at the marathon pace and the pace that you expect to run. Um, so, you know, I think when I ran the marathon in 2015 in Dublin, that was my best experience of running a marathon. And I was only running, you know, for, for fun and just for enjoyment. And I had set myself out a program and I it was the first time I really understood what it took to train for a marathon. And that was at the level I was at then, not at like a, a high level. And I think that's what people have to do is you have to be realistic with the level that you're at and you have to train at the level that you're at rather than, the the level that you'd like to be at and you know we'd all love to break three hours for the marathon every time we go out there but it's not realistic and you know you have to train realistic and if you don't train realistic then you're not going to get to the start line so you really have to be patient and take your time and not worry about you know the thousands of people that are going to be around you on the start line you have to think about what you can do not what they're doing um it was different for john and lizzie you know when you're competing to try and win a marathon then what you, what you know you can do can be changed and dictated by others because you know you need to keep up as well and you want to be in the competition but if you're just out there and you want to do the distance you want to enjoy it then the more prepared you are the better you will enjoy the experience and you know I had a fantastic time in Dublin in 2015 just you know running comfortably within myself and then also you know experiencing the crowds and the people cheering that kind of gives you a bit of a boost and it allows you to run a bit better than you expect um but you know the key is to enjoy it and it's going to get hard at some point but you know you want to push that out as long as possible and so don't go too fast at the start and be patient and you know just you know take your time is, is the key with the marathon
1: your experience in Rio then in 2016, Lizzie. You're 36 years of age, you've already given birth. Uh, it's hot, it's uh, a, a race with Fanula McCormick and uh, Breage as well. Connolly, you had it with you as well in the race from Ireland. How did it go? What were your emotions like? What were you thinking during the marathon?
2: Oh, just get to the finish line. Um, it was <laughs> roasting. So we were unfortunate because the men actually, I don't know if anyone remembers, Meb um, fell over the finish line. He slipped because it was so wet. It was cold. We were on a week before and it was roasting. It got up to 33, 34 degrees, but it was 92% humidity. So um, the way I would treat anything is control the controllables, right? So there's certain things... That were going to be out of outside of my control for Rio, for example, and one of them was the heat. I couldn't control the weather on the start line, but I could control my my response to it. I could do my homework around it, and that's the real big thing about the marathon. And John said it; he nailed it. You get found out in the marathon. Every little thing gets so. Um. Fortunately, Trevor Woods, the physiologist in UCC, was amazing, and we did loads of heat preparation. You know, weighing me before and afterwards, running in a heat chamber, this kind of thing, um, So I had exactly, I knew for 33 degrees, the pace I was going to do. I knew what I had to drink, when I had to drink, how much I had to drink. And um, I was 110th through 10 miles in the marathon in Rio and I came 56th and I didn't speed up from 10 miles to the finish line. I actually in and around maintained my pace. the other girls that i passed hadn't done that preparation a lot of them much better runners than i ever would be um but in particular i remember a spanish girl collapsing about mile 15 Um, and she just hadn't drunk enough that was it so part of the marathon is you have to be prepared um so when i got to that finish line i think because i had put so many years into it, because I tried to go to London and I had failed miserably at that. And when I then we got married, I had the baby, there was this big long roadmap to get to to Rio. And um and then I had to contend with the heat of the day. And to get to the finish line was without doubt one of the best feelings of my whole entire life, probably the best. And see, Sonia and John are here at talking to a different level that I was I was there to get to that finish line, to become an Olympian at the finish line. John and Sonia were competing for medals when they went to the Olympics. Um, I'm at the other end where full-time working mom just actually wanted to get to the finish line and become an Olympian. Um, And I think you can be proud of all of the above. You know, um, and I certainly, I ran 2.39.57 in Rio and Trevor told me if it was 33 degrees that to 2.40, 2.40, that's what was my target. So, like, I know I got the best out of myself on the day. And it was only that evening when I was having drinks in the pub. Mm-hmm. eat Georgina, drum, friends, family, parents, everybody. And someone said to me, God, what were you going to do if you didn't finish? Like, and I just went, that just didn't <laughs> even go through my head because I couldn't let that go through your head. <laughs> so one of the things of the marathon is talk to those gremlins out loud and say, this is not going to happen. I am going to get to the finish line. I've done my homework. I've controlled the things I can control. I've practiced wearing all the gear. Enda um, Fitzpatrick met me for my last 22 miler in Spain, and I was dripping in the Irish gear. And we pa- practiced the bottles and everything before I flew out to, to Brazil, because you, you go to that level of detail. You, you wear the socks, you wear the runners, you, you practice the bottles, you practice the, you, you, everything. So that nothing is to chance because you can't bluff a marathon.
1: You just can't. Talking to yourself, Sonia, did you talk to yourself <laughs> much in a, in a 5,000 meter <laughs> Olympic final in Sydney versus talking to yourself in a Dublin marathon?
3: Um, I did. <laughs> I mean, in the marathon, you have to be very disciplined, you know, and you have to hold yourself back. I think in the uh, 5,000 meters, you have to be a bit more alert and you have to be able to react yeah. to whatever's going on around you. And uh, there, there was a moment there in um, Sydney where I think I fell asleep, and the leaders kind of got a little bit away from me, and um, I had to wake myself up. And you know that it's a bit like if you're out for John Tracy, he'll notice. If you're out for a bike ride, sometimes, and you're riding along, and somebody comes <laughs> past you, they kind of wake you up, you know, and then you think, Jeez, I better get going here," <laughs> and you get pick up the pace again. So I think what happened to me was um, Joe Pavey was in front of me, and I had raced against her a lot and you know rarely would she beat me and I thought hang on a second what's going on here and all of a sudden I thought I got to get myself back into this again and you know you can forget what's going you can be distracted by a lot of things in an Olympic final you know there's a lot going on around you and I had to re-engage with the race and get myself back into the position so that I was you know where I needed to be when it came to one lap to go and um, you know it it all happens very quickly um I, I don't think it happens so quickly in the marathon you know there is a lot of, a lot of thinking time there i mean for me the marathon i think the thing i liked the most was the training the training was fantastic and just getting ready and i every time i stood on the start line and i did i think i did six marathons um every time i stood in the start line i would question myself and think why am i doing this you know oh. and i had to remind myself that you know you trained for this and you wanted to do this so you know get out there and do it now and you know take responsibility of getting a result out of you know all the hard work that I've put in and all the you know family and friends and coaches who've been there and helped me and supported me like you owe it to them as much as to yourself to to go out there and to, to deliver a result.
1: Um, I was watching your marathon from 84 John on YouTube a few months ago and I was thinking of all the people back in Ireland, back in the mid 80s, when it wasn't the, the wealthiest country in the world, looking at this exotic Los Angeles. And it was a complete leap into the unknown for you, John, because it was your first marathon. It was. Uh, it was.
0: But again, uh, Lizzie touched upon it. The, the homework was done. Uh, I, I had, had been kind of secretly training for the marathon uh, all winter long. And... Um, uh, I'll just tell you a couple of stories about it. Sure. Uh, probably around May, before the Olympic Games, I had um, I had um, I, I went to a half marathon run in a and very hilly course, around sixty-five minutes, and then kept going for until twenty miles. So I was kind of preparing myself. I was doing the long runs, and again, as Lizzie said, it was a very hot, hot uh, Los Angeles. But I I had been in Rhode Island as as um, during the summer and it was really extremely hot in Rhode Island during that summer and I was out running my 25 mile runs, my 26 mile runs, uh, my 29 mile run uh, was done over 90 degrees the whole the, the, the whole way. So it was the preparation in terms of getting acclimatized and I had a, a bunch of runners that helped me in terms of those. Some would do maybe the first 18 miles and then someone would jump in and do the last 10 miles with me so i had I had colleagues that were willing to to train with me and 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 do it in, in ungodly hours so that we could get the get the training done so it 's very much a team effort, but it was really around preparation and preparation and uh, when uh, again Los Angeles went out to the starting line that day uh, it was very hot and like we ju- I just sheltered before the race and um, you know the the race starts off and uh, we talk about it is the first water stop is the most important and the second most important water stop is the second water stop so really I kind of worked on that basis get as much hydro- water into you as you possibly can take uh, uh, early on and keep the body temperature down and that's that was the that was where we where we to. and then really I found myself uh, up uh, around 10 miles with the liters without really any any great effort because I was used to running quicker, much quicker per mile than the marathon pace, so that the 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 track uh, times that I had done in the, in the in that summer had 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 stood to me and and then when the real race progressed into into eighteen miles, twenty miles, and the pace kicked up, picked up i I was ready for it, but then it was just kind of grin and bear and put yourself through it, and uh it was for me going into that race, it was. It was going to be medal or nothing, and that was that was the way I approached the race. Uh, I was either not going to finish, or I was going to get a medal. That was simple as that, and I was willing to put myself on the line. But I, I had the I had the confidence, and I had the training done. I was ready for the heat, and I was ready for the heat of battle. Psychologically, I was ready for it as well, and that's that's an important piece. And uh, so, look, all the pieces fell into play and and it worked out extremely well for, for me on the day and of course um jerry Kiernan was in that race as well and had an absolutely phen- phenomenal run a phen- phenomenal run and i think we've all re- kind of really relived that race this year because of the passing of jerry and i certainly did uh, i went back and looked looked at looked at the race again myself and hadn't done it for quite some time and you know just the think about Jerry and, and talk about what he had done on that particular day and had produced his most uh, exceptional and outstanding run of his career on the biggest day of his career. And I, can, I think, okay, both of us did it on, on that day, but it is something that's a great testimony to the training that Jerry was able to put in as well. And he was training in California at the time uh, uh, leading into that. So it's 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 fantastic when a plan comes together. And Lizzie said it, uh, you walk away from the finish line and you know you can't give one more inch of energy, right? And that's when you know you have to be satisfied with what you achieved. And I, I remember a week after uh, the Los Angeles uh, Olympic medal, going for, try, trying to go for a run. And I actually couldn't run. And I literally... For the first time, I walked back after 200 yards and just left, right? But I had, in essence, just ran myself to a standstill. And that's what you really want to achieve when you face that uh, that big, big race in your career. And I, I was fortunate that I, that I had I, I was able to do that on that particular day.
1: Just speak about Jerry there, John. He was your friend. He was your, uh, I, I remember reading that you ran up the Dublin mountains. He yeah. won two Dublin marathons himself, a, a decade apart. He, he really made such a huge impact on many people's lives. He did,
0: he did. And I, I just maybe, I was living in Dublin in the early 80s, and and uh, we had a house in Dundrum and we used to meet on a Sunday morning. Uh, and there was be about 20 of us meeting over over Marley Park and we'd, we'd take off up the Dublin mountains and uh, we do 20 miles Uh, uh, you go straight up that kind of run wasn't for as I said the faint-hearted but ran away ran at a good pace and everyone kind of stayed in there but um, it was it was it was it was just it was just done it was enjoyable it was done it was done with a great bunch of guys at the time and uh, so I got to know Jerry very well during that period of time and then I went back to the States to for to train for the olympic games and train full-time and um uh it's just I, I i suppose we we've always come together uh we celebrated the 25th anniversary of the marathon as well with dick hooper and 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 jerry in my house with with some friends and that was a that was a very special occasion for me uh, and I hope for the two, two guys as well, because we were great teammates. We had great team managers around us and uh, p- team people that were there to help the, and assist us and get us through it. And I, I suppose th- th- I, what I've always said, and I've always met loads of people that, and students and pupils that um, were taught by Jerry. And to a pupil and to a parent, they said he was the most outstanding, teacher that ever came across so he gave his heart and soul to his pupils and then of course his athletes that he trained he put everything into them as well and was totally and utterly committed uh, to his athletes that he trained and hugely dedicated and i think we all heard Kira McGee speak about him and and the emotion in Kira when she spoke about him and uh, and the love she had for him and, and, uh, and, and that, that filtered right down to all the athletes that I met after Jerry's passing. Uh, they just couldn't speak highly enough about him. Uh, a great man and totally and utterly committed. And uh, he kept us all amused in terms of his stories. And uh, he was very well read, very well read. And you could have, you could have a conversation with Jerry on anything.
1: Yeah, you shared a studio with him, uh, Sonia. He was a coach. He was a an educator, and he, he was very authentic.
3: Um, yeah, and you know he brought his work uh, to the studio as well, and you know he showed us all how to prepare and how to be ready to to work on TV. Um, but it wasn't all serious. And it was always you know a bit of fun and laughter there, and you know it's something that I suppose made my time working with RT covering all the. Olympics and world championships and European championships it was something I always look forward to and uh, I love to share the um, panel with Jerry you know whenever we were on there you, you knew that we were going to have good fun and um, you know you, you kind of wish sometimes that the people at home could see the laughs that you had because oftentimes when Jerry was talking it was very serious and intense because he had all the detail and the facts and the figures but um, there was a lot of fun behind that. <laughs>
1: We need people like that in our corner when we talk about our own sports like athletics. You need people like Jerry. that he was he a was great ambassador for the sport, Lizzie.
2: Oh, absolutely. I, I shared a studio with him twice for European cross-country um, championships. He'd arrive with his notes and he, had, he knew everything. He knew all the favourites. And, and I remember um, being, being coached to go on live with him to say, you know, don't be afraid to challenge him because you had such respect for him that uh, you, you'd, you'd, you'd kind of, cohort, or maybe I'm a bit wrong, but you could, you could if it was about athletics, he, he'd engage in that conversation and he would be well. no, I don't think, well, do you think? And he'd just always, he wanted to talk, he loved athletics. I mean, it was everything to him. He just adored it and he was so passionate and he was honest. And to that point, obviously, I've been away on championships with John Travers, Kieran McGean, I mean, and they couldn't speak more highly enough about Gerry um, and, and, and just his complete passion for athletics and for, for people. He, you often hear stories about him um, that he would care just as much about getting somebody under four hours as he would about his 230, 229 marathoner runner. And that's a real coach. It's somebody who just wants to get the best out of, out of their athlete. And as Sonia said, you would have the crack with him, but when it came to the on-screen bit, you know he, he, he got serious because athletics was so important to him. But I'll never forget Sean Tobin coming in in the top 10 in the European cross-country uh, this two or three years ago. And he had been a bit miserable because the races beforehand, we our favorite Sarah Healy had fallen, and he was really upset about that. And and then Sean Tobin came in with this magnificent run, and he just he was actually just speechless because he was so happy that the man from Clonmel had done good, you know, um, because that's what he cared about was Irish athletics.
1: Just before we go to the break, what happened then after the uh, silver medal uh, in Los Angeles, John? Was there much of a? Hooli back here in Ireland. Were you fated? What happened uh, immediately after, and in the days and weeks? Well, yeah, we, we
0: well, I was I was out of the country for five days, and then I, I came back to parades and in, in 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 Waterford and in in town and Monaghan and you name it. There was parades uh, even in Ace. <laughs> I was passing through, so I was I was hijacked a few times, and, and it's I I suppose they're not circumstances where I'm particularly comfortable, right? I prefer to go away and enjoy the medal on my own, really. But I, you do appreciate, like, it, it is something you're doing for your country and you're doing for your county and you're doing for your community as well, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, so, uh, and I, I suppose uh they're things you kind of I kind of put up with them more more than embrace them and uh, but thats that was just my personality uh but look it was it was great it was a great time and uh, certainly look back on those years years in a very fun 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 way and um, I, I suppose the the piece around it is is really is that look we look back now over however many years it is and just kind of appreciate what we had in that short period in our lives. And um, uh, to be able to go out and compete against the best in the world and sometimes succeed was, was, was fantastic to have that uh, in your lives. And look, I suppose we reflect on it now uh, in terms of when the career is over and we're doing other things. And um, look, I can certainly remember very well where it was for Sonia's silver medal. And it's itched on my mind forever. Right. I I was in the stadium in Sydney and it it was it's itched in my mind in terms of the emotion that I went through watching Sonia in that race. And when she was at the back of the field, I was having a heart failure. Now, Sonia, you were giving this heart failure. Come on. Right. And and I was having a heart failure and I was beside a person and I had their arm grabbed. Right. And I didn't let it go. And the the lady I was sitting beside, I knew her. She was black and blue after I was finished that race, right? <laughs> so that was that was um, that was just the the emotion we all go through. And I remember seeing Lizzie as well in Rio and, and and the conditions after that. And you kind of feel for you feel for your for for your fellow athletes and you feel for what they what they go through and you'd always be in a city and you'd be looking at the marathon and you'd be looking at the temperature. This is the kind of the mind of the athlete going, you'd be saying, oh my God, they're not going to go out that. But they do it and they're resilient and they put in fantastic performances like Lizzie like like, like Lizzie did.
1: Sonia, do you remember what happened immediately after you won that silver medal in Sydney?
3: Um, <laughs> you do, but it kind of gets lost sometimes. I think um, beforehand you try and you don't really think about what you're going to do afterwards and I I didn't practice, you know, <laughs> what was going to happen if there was success or failure. It was one of those things where I got to the point it was my third Olympics and I was determined that I was going to be happy with the result no matter what. And then when you finish second, you kind of have that little inkling in your mind for a few seconds thinking, shit, what if I won? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and yet, what what you know you kind of think you know, could I have been happier? And um, you know, I had to, you know, weigh things up and realize that you know there comes a time when you know, yes, you have to be happy with silver because you know these opportunities only come around once every four years, and you know, not everybody is in the position to you know be rewarded and to take home any silverware. So um, yeah, it was it was definitely a bit surreal afterwards because you're in the stadium and all the people that you want to be with, you can't really be close to them because they're up in the stands or they're outside. And, you know, it was about four hours later, midnight, by the time I got to meet up with my parents who came out. And even at that stage, they were with Father Liam Kelleher, who's a massive supporter of athletics down through the years from from when I was really young. And um, they were on one side of a fence and I was on the other. So we couldn't even hug or anything. You know, it was kind of, You know, you could just about touch and, you know, show the medal and stuff like that. And so it wasn't really until the next day that we got together because of the way things turned out. You know, we just couldn't get together. You know, it's like that when you're in, I suppose, when you're in the Olympics, the accredited people are on one side of the fence and the unaccredited are on the other. And you don't always plan how you're going to meet up afterwards. And my coach, Alan Story, he was staying with us in the house. Um, outside of the village and um, so we got to go and uh, have a beer with him later on that night and I remember I went to bed and you know put the medal under my pillow and uh, when you wake up the next day you're kind of like half afraid to check is it still there
1: or not <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> like the tooth fairy it is there <laughs> yeah
3: yeah and then that's when it that's when it's really real you know when you know it's still there the next day and you get to carry it around and you know explain it and try and relive the moment because sometimes we look back and you watch the race on TV and then it gets a bit confusing you know what you really thought about it and what you experience and you know how you see other people describe it um, so um, but you know it was definitely you know one of the best races I ever ran um, you know I suppose there was a point where I was nearly losing it and then I had to rescue myself and to put myself back in the position again where I knew that you know
1: I could, you know, be there to, to race for a medal. Well, we have to take a break. We're back with more chat on the Saturday panel about the art of marathon running and more besides with John Tracy, Sonia O'Sullivan and Lizzie Lee after this. The Saturday panel on Off The Ball. Well, you're welcome back to Off The Ball Saturday here on News Talk, where this week's panel is about the art of marathon running. Streaming the conversation as well now, so as well as listening on News Talk, you can listen to us on the social channels for Off The Ball, for Periscope on Twitter, Out Off The Ball, YouTube, Facebook, and on the OTB Sports app. Delighted to be in the company of three legends of Irish sport, Olympians. John Tracy, Olympic silver medal winner from 1984 Los Angeles Marathon and CEO of the Irish Sports Council. Cork's Lizzie Lee, 2016 marathon runner in Rio and European cross-country gold team medal winner. And Sonia Sullivan, silver medalist at the Olympic Games in Sydney in 2000 and a winner of the Dublin Marathon and obviously as well the world champion at 5,000 metres from 1995. I just, John, Tracy, when it does go the other way, when it goes wrong, what's it like when it hits the wall, when you hit the wall in a marathon? Is it the case that the brain and the body are not in conjunction whatsoever?
0: Yeah, it's, um, it's funny. I, um, uh, I, I, if you, I suppose if you're talking about the marathon going wrong, it probably would go back to the Boston Marathon probably around 1990 uh, when – when i was coming off the hills and i was in third place and i actually i was within 20 yards of the leaders and i actually said to myself i've got it i've got it in the bag and then five yards later you're holding your hamstring right and that's the kind of shock and terror of the marathon uh, uh you get yourself in absolute terrific shape and it all goes wrong for you and um and and that went back into a session that i had done maybe Six six weeks prior in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and just went one extra, one extra quarter, and just did myself a bit of damage that came back and caught me out in the marathon. So, you know, there's 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 those moments, and you know that kind of moment and that race broke my heart. It did really and truly. I w- I always wanted to win Boston, and I was third twice, and I really wanted to win it, and I felt that day it was there for me to take. And it was snatched away. And it was my it was my hometown race. I had, li- I had lived there for 10 years in the, in the Boston area. And I really did want to win it, but it didn't happen. And so, but, you're, you, but it did take me a while to recover from that. Uh, it just did because it was such a deep disappointment for me. And you kind of pick yourself up. And you you put your mind on on another race, and uh, the next year I won the Los Angeles Marathon in Los Angeles itself. I went back to Los Angeles to win the Los Angeles Marathon, and and so there's occasions you just pick yourself up, and that's what we are. I think distance runners are resilient. You know they know there's going to be a disappointment uh, around the corner, and I think when you get older, you the disappointments come more a little bit more frequent, right? <laughs> Because you're not 20 anymore, you're not 25 anymore. You can't recover fairly quickly. You have to plan a lot more carefully, and you have to respect your years. and And that's really when you do start pulling things and 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 pulling your hamstring. Like you, you know, you'd be in your 30s when you're pulling your hamstring. But age catch up catches up to to everyone, and you just have to respect your body more and maybe rest it more. And sometimes. The mind might be in your twenties and the body is in your thirties, and that's sometimes you run into trouble. Then, when when that happens, and uh, so yeah, you have your heartache, and I had those heartaches, uh, but you do pick yourself up and you get back on the horse again, and off you go. And uh, 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 you know, there's always a kind of a, another race around the corner. But the piece around the marathon is this: you put you put six months of training in for a world-class performance and you know if you're trying training for the track you get 12 races right but in a marathon you get one shot and it can go horribly wrong on you and then it's six months of nothing really and truly without any any return so that's hard to take so marathon marathon running and com- competition is not for the faint-hearted uh, you have to you have to be tough and resilient and when you get the Knockout punch, pick yourself back up again and get back out there.
1: And Lizzie, yeah, Lizzie, you're nodding your head there when John was saying that
2: Totally. The, well, I suppose it makes that a wise man once told me, he's in the corner of the screen, <laughs> you've got about four or five really good marathons in you um, <laughs> at, at the kind of elite level. And I forget you said at I hadn't even done a marathon and you said it to me in the Dungarvan 10. I had won the Dungarvan 10 and you were presenting the John Tracy Dungarvan 10 and you were presenting the prizes. <laughs> And you literally stopped him when you are doing the marathon. Um, it would have been about 2011, I'd say. So I was trying to make London 2012 at the time. Um, I think you'll run more at the, this level, more marathons you're disappointed with than marathons you're happy with. But flip side of that is when the marathon goes right, it's so magnificently beautiful. <laughs> that you, ju- you can't even, you can't describe the feeling you know, even during it um i think i've had i've i've probably had two two that i just just adored uh, one being berlin the, the time i qualified in 2015 i didn't enjoy rio because of the heat um but also dublin 2018 i adored it i every minute i was with the leaders going up foster's avenue um i got on the podium i mean it was it was but dublin is special as well right so to get it right in dublin you know, I, I had actual goosebumps turning going down by um, with, with a mile to go going through Donnybrook and going through all, all that area because, you know, I knew what it meant to the likes of Jim Ockney, Dick Hooper, my coach, Donny Walsh, who ran 1972 Olympic marathon was at the finish line waiting for me. And when you, I had had a bad, I had done actually an unprecedented thing. I had done the European Championships that summer. And been absolutely gutted and inconsolable at the finish line. Um, I had run, I think, two forty and some change. It was a bit hot, but it just was—it was a sub-par run, and I had been really upset. So Donny said, "Well, look, let's just let's just go to Dublin because you've always wanted to do Dublin." So to turn it round in the kind of ten-week period is—I've never done it since, and I, I had never done it before, and I got away with it. So, so I had the disappointment lodged in my brain of all of that. So then when it went right, it's just so superb. Uh, Brian Keane, who ran the triathlon in in Rio, said to me once, um, when you're on that high, when you're on that podium, take it all in because those moments are so few and far between that to get it all right when it all gels is just so worth all of the disappointment and you forget about it all. And I think with the marathon in particular, when you get it right, when you get that PB or that medal or that placing, you can't describe it. It's just like, you know, another another place of euphoria. It's just brilliant.
1: We're speaking to Lizzie Lee, John Tracy and Sonia Sullivan about the art of marathon running and obviously other issues in athletics. And you're coaching at the moment, Sonia, in the United States.
3: I am, yes. I've uh, yeah, made a bit of a leap of faith here, I think, uh, to do something different. I think I was getting bored, you know, not being able to travel and go places. And then this opportunity opened up for me. So um, I'm helping out with a team out here. And we're at Altitude at the moment, training in um, Park City in Utah. And just up here a couple of days. So, John, you'll know all about that. those first few days of Altitude. Mm. And mm. I was told yesterday that the first three days, um, you get that altitude high and you're so excited to be somewhere where it's nice for running and activity and you try and do everything and then you crash <laughs> so um, <laughs> I've, I've had a good few days but uh, the running is definitely tough up here and um, you know a lot of marathon runners would use altitude training as part of their training to, to get really fit and strong um, you know in the in the weeks leading up to the marathon um, but you yeah, know it, it's, it's interesting to kind of step back into the world of you know, elite running and being there, you know, on the other side of the, I suppose, the track really holding the stopwatch and, um, you know, athletes, there's a lot more knowledge and information out there now and different methods of training. Um, You know, a lot of it, you know, you still have to do the basics and, you know, put in the hard work but um, there's a lot more stuff out there now and I think athletes are much more aware of the the recovery is the big thing um, to help them to get the best out of themselves and I don't think um, we all realize that. I don't know about John, but I definitely, you know, you push through a lot of stuff and you didn't have, you know, the recovery methods that are available to a lot of athletes or that they, they make available to themselves now so that they can get out there and train hard day in, day out and, um, you know, reach those high levels to be able to, there's more, like there's more particularly female athletes, I think competing at a higher level now, you know, the, the standard is increased greatly. And because of that, then we see even greater performances and um, and results. So you have to be ready or you, you get lost. You know, you really do have to be as prepared as you can be. And yeah, all sights are firmly set on Tokyo. And I think with the recent announcement that, you know, all countries are going to be Given vaccinations, I think that you know, makes it even more realistic that things are, are going to
0: happen in, in
1: three months' time, less than three months now. Something you'd welcome, John, as well, that news that came out this week from um, with Pfizer and the IOC.
0: Yeah, it's, it's great news. And um, uh, we're delighted uh, that Pfizer has stepped up and, and agreed to do that. And, um, look, we, we would feel for our athletes because, obviously, uh, the athletes are going away to prepare uh, in other countries and race in other countries, and they go to these environments where people are not as careful as 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 we are in Ireland. And uh, we would have found that, well a number of athletes picked up COVID by by going to uh, countries and picking it up. And uh, again, they're putting themselves at risk. And I suppose the big piece around this was this was that um, uh, the situation of an athlete going off unvaccinated to the Olympic Games and, 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 and picking it up while they're there. And then they're out and everyone around them is out as well. So uh, we're delighted that a solution has been found to that because you'd hate to have an athlete put all that work in and have to withdraw from an event two days or three days beforehand. So uh, it's, it's, it really is great news. It's great news for the athlete, athletes as well in terms of, in terms of having to worry about it. Athletes are by nature are warriors, right? They worry about everything. We worry about everything when you're out competing. That, uh, no, it's, at least it's one less thing if they have the vaccination uh, that they they don't have to have to worry. And, of course, the backup team around them as well, and in terms of the physios and the medics as well. Uh, uh, and that's all good news. And obviously the officials as well, which is an important piece because uh, you want to make sure everyone is is COVID-free. And uh, it's
1: great news and with like. It seems like it's more likely to go ahead than, uh, than John than it was possibly a few weeks ago.
0: Yeah, I, I think so. I think it's all systems going now, And uh, the athletes, again, are resilient. They, they plan as if, if it's going ahead. Uh, the <laughs> schedule in terms, of, in terms of qualification or qualifiers is, is being moved back all the time. So it's really, really a difficult time for the athletes. And for the boxers or wherever you are, you're trying to get your qualifiers and you're trying to keep for a given day and those days keep keep moving. Uh, and, you know, it just goes to show how, how difficult it is in COVID times, but they're resilient. They put their head down and they, they move on. And uh, it's fantastic that we have so many people qualified and, and continuing to qualify. And uh, fantastic to see our four by 400 team qualify. Uh, for the Olympic Games uh, last weekend and that was fantastic to watch uh, on television or on YouTube I think it was on so we all enjoy that and it's it's just fantastic that so many people are qualifying but very importantly as well uh, a lot more sports are qualifying with 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 quality performances and uh, you know that's the system operating and working and uh, uh, you know more sports qualifying more athletes getting the qualification and we'll have we'll have a sizable team and we'll have a large number of sports there as well and of course the Paralympians as well which is even more difficult and uh, obviously the Paralympic athletes will be vaccinated as well and that's that's just fantastic news for
1: everyone. Absolutely and hopefully we'll have uh, medals in both the Olympics and the Paralympics uh, for Team Ireland. Just the issue of shoes Lizzie Lee, uh, Elliot Kipchoge, <laughs> right, she wrote, um, I, I haven't said anything wrong here, he Broke two hours for wearing these Nike Vaporfly shoes, right? <laughs> now they're banned for elite runners, but these are high tech designs. They're those other ones are legal. <laughs> are these state of the art shoes unfair for a race like the marathon? I don't know if I've opened a camera, kind of worms here. Well, uh-huh. yeah.
2: There's about five different boxes <laughs> <laughs> on the other side of this room. So, um, look, every, every brand of sport of shoe everybody has come out with their new their new version of this so you can get them across it it started and it was just one it was Nike right and they came out with the Vaporfly and since then all the other brands have come out so the way I see it now is it's a level playing field because all of the brands are there and they're accessible to everybody now at the start they weren't and they weren't accessible to everybody Um, like I've had, I could, I mean, so many long runs have been just dedicated to these shoes. Um, I actually only put on the new, the next percent for the first time ever about two weeks ago because I did a deal with myself after I had my baby that I wasn't allowed. My husband got them for me for a Christmas, but I had a you know, four week old. I said I wasn't allowed to put them on until I was fit. Um, and between the pandemic and the small baby and the maternity leave anyway, I put them on about two weeks ago, and they're lovely. They're really comfortable, (laughs) they're very nice, and they're bouncy. But what I have found- Is it easier? What I have found, John, is that you recover quicker from a session. My calves aren't as tight afterwards. So um, is it easier? No, because you're going to go harder you're going to put in the same effort, but you might maybe go a little bit quicker. Um, I haven't tried and tested that. I wore the, the, there was a first version without a carbon plate that I did wear in Dublin in 2018. And I always found that my calves just, normally I'd have really tight calves towards the end of a marathon. And if I wore those, my calves didn't lock up. They were certainly a bit bouncier. And my dad has a photo of me finishing the women's mini marathon that year. And I'm coming off a bridge and I am miles in the air because these lovely magic shoes and um, they've brought the times down I mean there's no question about it there was a quota of 80 athletes for the women's marathon for um, Sapporo for Tokyo and um, they didn't think they that they would get the 80 with a 229 30 they had 40 places they said roughly 40 will get 229 30 when they did the maths and 40 will get this qualification point system and lo and behold they're at they've got the 80 now through the 22930 the only method of getting into the olympics is coming top 10 in a major or um running a 22930 so it, that would have been about 232 in my day pre shoes so it's definitely they've brought that originally they were called the 4% they've brought that level of you know but it's a level playing field because everyone's wearing them so i can't i don't i don't consider it cheating and the majority of athletes would say they recover quicker from their runs with them on. Um, but would I love to go back and run Berlin 2015 wearing them? Absolutely, because I think my 232 would have gone down. <laughs> <laughs> I might have broken 230 and that would be on the book. So, you know, what would John have run in, in Los Angeles? You know, yeah. so um, I, I do think maybe there should be an asterisk beside records with, with or without shoes mm. because they've had an impact on times so and no
3: one can deny that.
1: Sonia, are you comfortable or uneasy with this situation?
3: Um. Oh, well, I think we have to move with the times, you know. Um, I'd love to know, has John Tracy ever put a pair of these shoes on him?
1: <laughs> Go on, John. Have you? No, I haven't. No, I haven't. No. No. I- uh, I,
3: I have.
0: Sorry, sorry.
3: Go on. Go on. No, I I've actually worn them and um and they're fantastic. Like you know, you sometimes you feel I I and I'm sure a lot of older athletes who have run faster when they were younger and you know you maybe run a little bit now. If you wear these shoes, you actually can't keep up with the shoes. Like they make you. the <laughs> <run. laughs> shoes are like running down the road ahead of you. <laughs> You're trying to keep up at <laughs> your fitness level. You know, you have to regain your fitness level to be, because they actually do make you run faster. And, uh, and they actually feel they're so comfortable. They're really, really great. Um, I would kind of compare it to cycling. And um, when I first started cycling, I used to ride a hybrid bike. And I would go out with all these, you know, men in Lycra in their light bikes and keep up and do really well. And they used to always say to me, wait till you get a proper bike, you'll be flying. And then eventually I got myself on a proper bike and it was so easy. It was great on the, on, you know, the light racing bike. And then I tried to go back and use my old hybrid bike and I couldn't keep up because I'd got, you know, you're so used to the benefits of the the lighter, the bike that kind of throws you forward. It makes you more efficient. And it's the same with the running shoes. It makes you more efficient and you run better. And you notice with, you know, the athletes who are, you know, at such a high level, so well trained, if you watch how they run when they wear any of these shoes with the plates, their legs pick up much quicker at the back. And so it just throws them forward and it just makes you more efficient. But, you know, you still need to do the training. You still need to work hard and um, and equally as hard because, you know, you've the, the, it's like a wave and it's moved on. You know, the, the, the times have moved on and we've all moved to a different level across the board so to keep up you still have to you know train at very high level and no matter what shoes you're wearing.
0: Uh, I I might come in on on that one because what I would do is I'd reverse the decision to load the shoes Um, (laughs) and I come at at it from the basis of track and field and the sport that we we know is man against man and (laughs) Uh, no advantages through manufacturing of shoes or anything, right? That's what we grew up with and um, that's, that's where you can be compared uh, over time, right? And uh, the, the shoes have changed all that. It, it actually has changed all that in terms of, in, in terms there is an advantage in terms of uh, percentage increase in terms of performances, right? Uh, I just think it's a shame. It's a shame for the sport because the one thing you could do in your sport is compare compare your athletes across generations. And I think that's that piece has been lost. And I think it's an awful shame because a lot of the, the sport is around the history of the sport. Looking at the times the athletes ran, and I, I'd be looking at this fantastic performances that Sonia ran on the track. And, uh, you, you know, like, now I know... And now let me just say one more thing on this. If I was competing today, I'd be in the shoes, because you'd have to be in the shoes. You you'd to. have to be in the shoes yeah. to compete. And that, there's there's no doubt. If you're an athlete, you have to be in those shoes. I'm sorry, right? It mightn't be what you want to do, but that's what the uh, the world athletics allow you to do. So that's what you would do.
1: Okay,
3: I I, I would agree with John in that you know yeah. you have to be in the shoes now, and so you have to move with the times, but you can't compare the times now to, you know, previous generations that there is definitely an advantage. And so because of that, it's more important to look at the race rather than the times. And I think the times are nearly irrelevant now um, because they're changing so often that, you know, it's not, it's not a novelty anymore. It's kind of like every time somebody goes out, they run a fast time. Um, So it's not exciting anymore to see people run fast. It's more exciting to see a competitive race and to see people competing against each other and not worry about what's going on on the clock. Uh,
1: Just before we wrap up in this amazing conversation, Sonia Sullivan, John Tracy, and Lizzie Lee. PE in schools, we had on Taoiseach Michal Martin in uh, the studio with Joe Malloy during the week, Lizzie. Uh, And we were going through the statistics. France, about 108 hours per year PE. Austria, 102 hours. Portugal, 90 hours. Ireland, 37 hours per year. The fourth worst in Europe, especially in primary schools. Can we develop better solutions for this? Because this to me seems like a public health issue in the, in the next few decades, a bit like smoking. If we have uh, unfished children and sedentary lifestyles and we don't have a grasp of this situation, which is, I was in Rio, I was lucky enough to be covering the games, all I saw in Rio was active people. People, now they've got the weather, thank, uh, to be fair to say that, but they were active, they were running, everybody was out. It's something that we need to address, I think.
2: Oh, absolutely. Um, so I'm a mother, a uh, six-year-old, a three-year-old and a one-year-old. So I have a senior infant in school. Um, she's in a wonderful school. They do the Daily Mile. She's actually being coached by her daddy in GAA right now, which is why my house is so quiet. They're all gone. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, my mother has the other two. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely a problem. And um, I, a lot of it lies with the parents. Monkey see, monkey do. If the parents get out and the kids see the parents active, certainly it needs to come from the top though as well. I mean, it needs to be a priority in the education system because, you know, I'll never forget uh, when I was in sixth year in school, a report was published and I, it was the Minister for Education who I think was me Martin at the time who came out and said that they had seen that leaving certs who played sport performed better in the leaving certs than those who didn't because they had to be organized and prioritize and everything. And I remember I used to have basketball at lunchtime on a Saturday, so I used to get all my homework done on Saturday morning. Um, and I think there needs to be that, that, that it's not just good for you, it's it's good for everything. It's It's all encompassing. We talk about wellness and mindfulness, well, physical education is just so important, and it's easy to do with the kids. This is what where the frustration, where I get frustrated. It's so easy. I mean, I, I see them down there, and they go round. They take the kids for a daily mile, and it's just around the block. And they have to have three teachers around the block, and they watch them all. And it, you know, and it's brilliant. And the kids are so excited afterwards. Um. It has to be fun. Everything with exercise has to be fun for kids. You make it too serious. They're just going to balk and not do it. And, um, you know, you see that with the attrition rates for kids, but girls between primary school and secondary school, they walk away from the sport because it's not cool or they're embarrassed or it gets too serious and they just not, not up for it. So it has to be made fun. But the, you know, those hours for PE, that's, that's, you know that's, that's bad no one can stand over those and say yeah we're prioritizing our kids yeah. health and well-being we're not um and and you know it, it you you can see it and as you said you know other countries it's just the norm it's just what happens so why are we not following suit why are we not putting that investment into it because it will pay off in dividend it will pay off in spades in the yeah. end because we'll have a healthier population
1: We'll keep people out of hospitals in the next few decades. Exactly
2: uh, my point, yeah.
1: Yeah. Why can't we have uh, like officers going around, as Joe was saying to Mihal Martin, like into schools, PE officers, and that it's not all down to one teacher in primary schools, John. It seems like a, a thing that is a simple solution. I mean, obviously, there's politics involved in all this kind of thing, but it has to happen. It's an, an actually an urgent thing.
0: Yeah. Uh, no, I, I, I think that I heard Micheal Martin, um, and obviously it's it's something that we would have been advocating for many many years uh, around PE in school and the need for the need for it as well in terms of uh, having having that time during the course of the school day where it's an integral part of the school day and it's as important as the reading and the writing and the math right it is uh, because what we're doing is is teaching children life skills now I think the piece that really, and it's really important, primary school and secondary school, the piece that's really important here is the non-sporty kids, right? The sporty kids get lots of opportunity and the sporting organisations have stepped up and, and f- filled the vacuum and, got, and gone into the schools and getting the kids out participating. But for not everyone can kick a football or hurl or... or uh, so for a lot of, a lot of children, they've they're not really competitive and they don't want to be in, in the competitive aspect and but that's not what PCP should be about it should be about it should be about learning the skills so that they can gain confidence so they can participate in any activity or sport that keeps them physically active and I think that's 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 an important piece and and obviously it comes down to the school day and and that and and that and having the skills within, 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 the, within the schools. But I agree, it is real. Uh, for us, it's a real priority uh, in terms of sports policy. And uh, it's beyond, uh, obviously, it's the Department of Education in terms of responsibility. But in terms of the health of the nation and, and teaching, uh, you have those skills forever that you learn in primary school and secondary school. And, but again, what I would actually say, and I'll, I'll touch on it, Lizzie touched on it parents, you know, we see so many cases of parents writing notes to get the kids out of PE, you know, that type of thing. Like it is parents do need to lead by example as well. And uh, so it, it's a combination of the system and the parents as well in terms of making sure the kids are getting the physical activity and the children are getting the physical activity during, during, during the week. And but look, I totally and utterly agree. Uh, the, the hours in primary school particularly are, are, are inadequate in, in my view.
1: And Sonia, your daughter Sophie's doing so well uh, at the moment, and we saw you in Sydney. We want to see the next Sonia Sullivan in the next twenty years or thirty years, and that's only going to happen if we up our game in terms of younger people, uh, whether they have ability or not, getting more active.
3: Yeah, I think you know we're in a generation now where, you know, the children they don't walk to school anymore; they don't walk anywhere you know you get driven everywhere and that's you know what causes a lot of this attention on the lack of PE hours because we need them even more whereas before kids were active at you know going to school coming home from school at lunchtime there was always this kind of natural activity that children were involved with and now they have you know more screens in front of them and so less kind of normal daily activity. Um, so you nearly have to double the PE time. And I would think the PE time probably hasn't changed much since when, when I was going to school. And that's the big thing that we need to look at and try and improvise it. I know when, um, so my two daughters, Kira and Sophie, they went to school in England and they also went to Australia. And there was always some level of sporting activity every day. And whether it was in school hours, lunchtime or after school there was, all, you, there was a, never a day that they didn't have to bring their PE kit. And so, like Lizzie said, you know, being involved with sport like everybody had to do some level of sport. So you, everybody had to be organized to bring their PE gear with them. And it does teach you organizational skills. So it's not just about being sporty, or being competitive, but it's just about including just physical activity in your day. And, you know, I think you notice it with a lot of adults now, there's a lot more adults being active and, you know, taking part in sports. And that's changed, you know, since when I was running in the, in the 80s, I would run around Cove and you would know everybody who runs. There was probably a handful at most, like, and you knew who these people were. Whereas now I go back to Cove and everybody's out running at all hours of the day and night. And so I think we need to bring that now down to the, the younger age groups as well. And it's just, I suppose, finding the time to do it because a lot of the parents are quite busy. And, you know, now the kids can't just go to the sport by themselves, which is what we did when we were younger. You just headed off by yourself. Whereas now the parents have to take them there, they have to wait with them and take them home. So it, it's a lot of time out of the day. And it's just how to, I suppose, get around that and somehow make the kids more independent to be able to do it and to make things safer so that children can go and be a part of the sport that they want to be involved with or the activities that they want to be involved with on competitive or recreational levels and and keep it fun that this is what they want to do and you know they want to get out there be active and and benefit from it
0: yeah and just to say john does oh, and tanya touched upon it there's a sport out there for everyone uh you know like in, when we were growing up the, the, there might have been a club uh in the town five miles away that you that you you ran for or what have you uh but there's a lot more clubs around there's a lot more sports available now to children and what i'd always say to children there's a there's a club out there for everyone and and take your time in picking in your picking your sport and and the bottom line here is is whatever you do enjoy it. and that's the key component and we've done a piece of research around teenage girls and it is for them it is about enjoyment and it is that social connection piece and not having that for a lot of them not having that big competitive piece to it so it is making sure there's a range of sports out there that 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 they feel welcomed by the club and they can do it in a, in a fun enjoyable way
1: enjoy is crucial and just to finish we love what we do we love seeing you uh, get to the Olympic Games, all three of you. Lizzie, are still running you're competitively? Are, are you still out and about? Are you pounding the pavements?
2: I am pounding the pavements because I have three small children and there was a pandemic and it was the only way I could <laughs> stay sane. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am seen on the straight road in Cork at approximately 7.15 every single morning. Um, yeah, I, I'm running competitively. There's... I hadn't planned for Tokyo because I had a third baby very much planned for the third child and it ran into Tokyo and then Tokyo was postponed by a year. But my, my, and John said it earlier, my older body just said no to the huge miles early on postpartum land. So it just couldn't get the training for a marathon done. And, there was a pandemic and there was nobody to mind the children. So that was very tough in terms of there was no babysitters, no grannies, no, no one um, other than me and my husband who was working from home. So um, I'm running and I'm just getting into some sort of decent shape. So, and I think we're going to see some races in the next few weeks and sport ireland are going to be kind to us and uh, so watch this space uh, and i'll see what happens and uh, and hopefully there's another green jersey because hopefully we'll get a european cross country in december in dublin the best,
0: the
1: best look with that john are you still running
0: yes uh, i still run a little bit i have to manage my knees as i as i call it uh, i'm biking and uh, I do a little bit of biking and uh, i've been on swift all 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 winter long and that keeps me healthy and uh, it, it, if i 'm on the bike it means that i'm i 'm out running as well because the, obviously the bike helps the knees and you can you can run then but if i wasn't doing the bike i wouldn't be running it 's as simple as that so a combination of a combination of both and I also obviously enjoy 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 walking a bit as well. And we have loads of forests around where I live and I really enjoy that as well. But the bike and running and, and a, a bit of walking then on the recovery days.
1: And Sonia, I know by reading the Irish Times that you're still well active.
3: <laughs> yes, I, I keep fit, And uh, I like John, I combine a bit of cycling and running. Running is always the number one because it's, it's very efficient and time efficient. You, know, yeah. you can get in and out very quickly. This, the bike can take a bit of time. Um, and I've also been doing a bit of gym work. So I find that really helps to build up the strength and uh, and, you know, avoid injuries, which is, you know, what we're, you do that, whatever level of uh, running or competing you're involved with, um, more so when you're older to help you to be stronger and to get out there and, and, and just enjoy it because a day without, you know, a- any kind of activity, even going for a walk is kind of a
1: it- it's a sad day. <laughs> well we have to leave it there John Tracy Lizzie Lee and Sonia Sullivan you've been so good to give your time for Off the Ball on the Saturday panel thank you so much for being an inspiration to so many people in this country of Ireland and keep moving forward thank you thank you John
3: thanks very much thanks John
1: the Saturday panel
3: on Off
2: the
1: Ball that was an OTB podcast network presentation